Hebrews chapter 11. You know, every week, you know, I work on a message and then I start thinking, okay, what in the world can I do to try to start the message? That's like the hardest thing to prepare for is figuring out how to start a message, you know. Uh, but I found this little video that came across my computer uh, a few weeks ago uh, that I was reminded of that I thought was pretty interesting um, that, uh, that I thought kind of set up what we're going to talk about today. And so here we go. I want you to take a look at this video. Now, just a couple things I noticed when I watched that video. Number one, that's not Memphis. I know that possibly could have been with all the potholes we have here, um, but it's not. But the couple things that I thought of when I first watched that video was, number one, um, don't look at your phone while riding your scooter. I don't know if you noticed that, but a guy, right before he fell in the hole, you see the glow of his phone hit his face because he looked down at his phone and he drove off in the hole. Number two, um, did you notice how that one guy walked up really slowly to the hole? The guy just fell in the hole, but yet he did not run up there. He just kind of casually walked and didn't even get up to the hole. But here's what really got me to thinking about this. Um, you know, a sinkhole that large does not open up overnight, right? It takes a long time, a, a lot of erosion. At some point, something had to have happened that opened up a way for water to get in there and over days, months, years, what was underneath that road was washed away. And what was, it was in, invisible. They really couldn't tell that it was there, obviously, or else they would have fixed it. And then suddenly, a moment came in which the whole thing came crashing down. You know, it, it kind of, to me, reminds me a lot about the decisions that we make in life. Every single day we make decisions. We, we make big decisions, we make small decisions. And if we're not careful, if we do not make those decisions by faith, walking with the Lord, what happens is the foundation of our spiritual life begins to wash away and it begins to erode. And so often everything looks fine. The effect of those decisions isn't, isn't immediately visible and everything looks perfectly good on the outside, but then some point of crisis will come, some decision will come, some, some dilemma will come, and all of a sudden in that moment the bottom falls out. And everything is washed away, and it's revealed that there was a hole in our heart. There was a, a, a gap in our faith. Today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, at the life of Moses. We, we move now to verse 23, where we're going to be looking at the example of Moses. First of all, we're going to be looking at the example of Moses' parents, and then secondly, of Moses. But these two passages we look at today, um, these verses we look at today, focus on choices. The choices that we make by faith. And how that, those choices will ground us in the Lord, or if we make the wrong choice, it will cause us to, to fail, to falter. Let's look at verse 23 first. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Point number one I want to make today is that faith chooses obedience over fear. That faith chooses obedience over fear. Now, the story it's talking about here, the parents that they're talking about are a man by the name of Amram and a woman by the name of Jochebed. They were Moses' parents, and it's talking about the passage from Moses' birth, Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 reads like this. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If you remember, Joseph 
was, was the son of Jacob that had risen to power in Israel after he had been sold as a slave. He, he, had, he had been the one that had saved the nation of Israel, had brought them there. But then that, that Pharaoh died. Another Pharaoh comes along who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, verse 9, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This Pharaoh was a nervous man. He believed that he had a problem on his hand. These Israelites were getting a little too big. There were too many of them. He was beginning to realize there were maybe even more of them than there were of the Egyptians. And so he came up with the plan. He said, I'm going to enslave these people. I'm going to make these people my slaves. I'm going to oppress them, and that's going to discourage them. But instead, what happened? They continued to multiply. So then later in that chapter, he comes up with another plan. He says he's going to instruct all the Hebrew midwives to take all the the male children, the the Hebrew boys, and kill them as soon as they're born. That plan backfired because the Hebrew midwives refused to do it. They would not do it. They would not kill these innocent children. And so then he said, okay, I'm going to come up with a third plan. We're going, to, we're going to enact this plan where all the Hebrew girls are going to live, but every single Hebrew boy that's born is going to be thrown into the crocodile-infested River Nile. And I'm going to take care of it that way. Now you can imagine the conflict that would be in a parent's heart in that moment. You can imagine the turmoil that a parent would go through when they received that order that their baby boy has to be tossed into a river to drown and be eaten by crocodiles. You can, you can probably imagine the heartache that Amram and Jochebed would feel in that moment. And it tells us in Exodus chapter 2 that Amram and Jochebed hid, hid their baby for as long as they physically possibly could do. Three months, it says, that they hid him. And then, in faith, they took that child and they placed that child in a basket and put that, child's ba- put that basket in the Nile, in the reeds, hoping, believing in faith that God was going to protect this child, that God was going to do something to intervene. And sure enough, God did. God calls none other than Pharaoh's daughter to be the one to find that baby. And of course, she finds the baby, and what is that woman going to do? Fall in love with that baby. And if you remember the story, that's where Miriam jumps in. Moses' sister had been watching from a distance, runs up and says, hey, let me find a Hebrew mom to take care of that child for you, to nurse that child for you, which happened to be Jochebed. And so Jochebed raises the child until he was old enough to then be adopted officially into Pharaoh's home and become Pharaoh's daughter's child. But notice in verse 23, Hebrews eleven twenty-three, I want us to pay attention to the motivation that they had for this. It said that they did this because the child was beautiful. The child was beautiful. Now, understand this. There's more to this than just the fact that Moses was a cute baby. You might read that and think, okay, he was a cute baby, so they decided to save him. If he had been an ugly baby, they wouldn't have done anything. That's not what it's saying here. Um, the principle that I think we need to understand, that we need to be reminded of, is that every single child is beautiful in God's eyes. Every single person that is created is precious in God's sight, whether that's an infant in the womb or whether that's an extremely elderly person who one day is very soon might be stepping into eternity. God cares for every child. And so we must be pro-life, as we've talked about many times, and we must, I believe, vote pro-life, that that ought to be a foundational issue for us. Genesis chapter 126 tells us that, should, that every single person is created in God's image. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that God knows the plan he has for us. We're also told in the Psalms by David that God knew us in our mother's womb. And so children are precious. And I believe they recognize this. But there's something even more here. That word beautiful here in the Greek pointed to a sense of purpose. This is not just 
attractive, is in physically attractive. But it, it says here that basically Amram and Jacobed looked at their child and believed that God had a plan. God had a purpose. God had a design for this child, that this job was significant, was worth saving. And because of that conviction, by faith, they did everything that they, do, they could do to save the life of their child. This was more than just a natural parental instinct. It would be the instinct of a mother to want to save every child, right? But this was even more than that. I believe this was a faith decision. It says, by faith, these parents hid this child because they had faith that God had a purpose, had a plan. Now, let's think about for a moment here the the weight of that decision. It says they were not afraid of the king's edict. There was a cost here. There was a danger here for the decision that they made. They were defying the orders of a ruthless king. It's revealed in the first couple of chapters of Exodus that this, this Pharaoh of Egypt did not care anything about the Israelites. He had already attempted to, in two different ways to, to try to eliminate the Israelites. He had already enslaved the people. In his mind, he's probably, they were probably thinking, what's two more dead Israelites to him? It would not matter one bit. They're not people, they're just possessions. But their faith in God's purpose, their faith in God's protection and God's plan overcame that fear. Whatever fear they might have had of the punishment they would have received was nothing compared to their faith in God. You know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that that as we watch our days unfold here in this world, that we are seeing more and more pressure on the church and on individual Christians um, there, there's more pressure to make a choice that either we are going to obey God in faith or we're going to simply fall in line with the culture, with an ungodly world. There is a choice before us that is growing stronger every day, a demand that's growing stronger that either we're going to remain faithful to God's word or we're going to have to simply abandon it and go with what the world tells us we ought to do and what the world tells us we ought to believe. We see it every, all the time in the news. We see the hostility that Christians face whether that be lost jobs or lawsuits or, or businesses being closed or, or being called names and, and labeled as, as, as being hatred and, and mean-spirited. But, but just like for Amram and Jacobet, our, our faith in God's direction, our faith in God's protection can and must overcome that fear of what would take place to us, what would happen to us if we choose to be obedient to God. That we have to have faith. And that I believe our faith can overcome whatever fear we might have of the persecution that we would face. Moses' parents were going up against the utmost authority, earthly authority of the day. In their mind, and for the average person, they could probably think of no human being who had more power over their earthly existence than, than he did. But their faith in God convinced them that the right thing to do was to obey. The right thing to do was to protect the innocent life. And they they knew that by doing so, they were placing their lives in jeopardy, but that they would rather suffer the wrath of man than suffer the wrath of God. And so they chose to do the right thing. Now the pressure, I believe, mounts on us every single day to, to compromise our belief in God's Word. And so we must have the faith to do the right thing despite what the world tells us to do. That we must have the faith to, to walk with the Lord daily in communion and prayer and to believe those words and not to turn away from them despite what might, be, what, what might be threatened against us. I can tell you from having conversations with teenagers and with college kids, 
um, over the years that they would describe to me the pressure that they face on a regular basis um, to simply conform, to simply go along with what is happening, the social revolution, I guess you could say, in our world. The temptation to fit in is, is extremely strong. Most of us, if we were honest, would say that, that we, we would like to just live quiet lives. We would like to just live peaceful lives. Uh, we don't want to be pointed out. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to be labeled as hateful. We don't want to be labeled as mean-spirited. And so there is a great pressure on us to simply say, you know what, let's just, let's just nod our heads and say yeah to whatever they tell us we ought to do. But let me ask you this, as a believer, is your faith in God strong enough? Is your faith in His Word strong enough that you would be willing to do the right thing to believe the Word of God even when others around you are pressuring you to do something else? Do you have that kind of faith in God? I read something this week about an experiment that, that got, really got me to thinking. Uh, you can ask Gary. Gary and I talked about this for quite a bit. Uh, back in the 1960s, there was a psychologist at Yale by the name of Stanley Milgram. Some of you might have heard of him before. And he wanted to try to figure out the answer to a question. He, he was wondering, well, how in the world did the Holocaust happen? He, he could not, for the life of him, figure out how all these Nazi soldiers could do such horrific things against the Jews and, and never stop, step back and say, this is wrong. How could I possibly do these things? He did not understand how human beings could do such awful things to other human beings simply because they were told to do so. You know, and so he, he was trying to figure out what causes that. And so he came up with this experiment in which he, uh, I'm going to try to describe it and hopefully it'll make sense. Um, he wanted to know if normal people who describe themselves as being morally good people, if normal people like you and me uh, would be willing to uh, shock someone elect with like electric shock, um, an innocent person. And so he set up this experiment where he would have a teacher and a student. And he put the teacher and the student in different rooms. And the teacher would sit at a desk and would go over memorization questions with the student in another room. And if the person got, got the question right, they would move on. If the person got the question wrong, they would hit a button on this machine that would deliver an electric shock to the student in the other room. Now, what the teacher did not know was that the student was an actor and that there was no real electric shock. But this machine would deliver 15 volts, and it would go up by 15 every single time that the person got a question wrong, and it would go all the way from 15 all the way up to 450, which would be lethal. And so he sets up the experiment, and, and, and these two people would come in, and uh, the, the teacher would sit down, the student actor would go in the other room, they would go over a question, they would, he would miss it, they would deliver a shock, the person would cry out and say, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. And the teacher would look back and say, I don't want to do this anymore. And there would be a person in the room who was running the experiment that would say, no, we have to continue, I need you to continue, it's okay. And I, I found there's a movie about this, and I've got a little short clip from the movie I want you to watch because I think it'll help you understand what's going on. So play that. Rug, pillow, hair, grass. Incorrect. 165 volts, strong shock. Let me out of here. I will not be part of the experiment anymore. He, he says he's not going to go on. Please continue. He, he says he doesn't want to go on. We must continue. In nearly every case, the essential results are the same. They hesitate, sigh, tremble, and groan, 
but they advance to the last switch, 450 volts, because they're politely told to. So what he found was this. He found that the average person, every single person he ran through that experiment was willing to shock that person up to 300 volts. And that 65% of them were willing to go all the way up to a lethal shock simply because they were told to do so. Because they were told to do so. Because someone over authority of them said, no, you got to do it. And they simply would say, okay, I'll do it. Flip the switch. Here's why I bring that up. And here's why I've been thinking about this a lot this week. It's easy for us to say, man, I'll stand up for the Lord. I'm going to do the right thing when there's nothing going on. But we need to be honest with ourselves and say it's far more difficult when it's in the real world. It's far more difficult when it's real life. The temptation to fall in line and to go along with whatever we're told to do is stronger than we might care to admit. What he found in that experiment is that, that for most of us, we have been taught to obey, to obey authority. It's what we do. And that it's hard for us to break from that. We might call it herd mentality, you know, like, the, like a herd of animals. We might call it peer pressure, whatever you want to call it. But every single day we turn on the TV, we open the newspaper, we read a magazine, we watch movies, we talk to our lost friends. There is a pressure that's being placed upon us, an immense pressure, to simply bow to the wave of social change that's going on. To simply deny what we've believed for years and for thousands of years as Christians but to, and, and to say, you know what, we're going to toss all that aside and we're just going to go along with what we're told to do. But it takes faith in the Lord to say, I know, no, 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 no. I'm going to stand up for what's right. And we must, by faith, Stand up against that and say, you know, I believe in the truth of the Word of God. We must have faith in His Word. We must have faith in God's will. We must have faith in God's protection that when we do this, God is going to care for us. That though we might suffer earthly harm, God will protect us. And I believe if we walk by faith, you know, sometimes we worry about, I don't know what I would say in those situations. I don't know what I would do in those situations. I think all we need to do is walk by faith right now and put our faith and trust in God. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, he says, when they bring, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What's he saying? Walk with the Spirit in faith. And when those moments come, if you are trusting in the Lord and you're having, your faith is in Him, just like Amram and Jochebed, you will know exactly what to do. In those moments, simply trust the Lord's Spirit and choose obedience to God over fear of man. Second point I want to make this morning is that faith chooses obedience over pleasure. Look at verse 24. It says, By faith, when he was grown up, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now that's a reference, that's it's referring back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, which says this, it's going to be on the screen. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he'd been living in Pharaoh's daughter's household, right? as a part of that family. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. 
And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, what, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And so here's what took place. Moses walks up all, all that time. Remember, he had been taught, I believe, by, by Amram and Jochebed during that short time whenever he was a child in their home up until he was officially adopted. He had been taught the ways of God, I believe. He knew he was an Israelite. And, and I'm sure there was that turmoil in his soul of what to do about that. And so he comes up that day and he sees the, this, this Egyptian beating this Hebrew and he knew that the right thing for him to do was to step in and to defend his, his brother, his Israelite brother. And so he kills that Egyptian in defense of the Israelite. He buries them and he thinks, okay, everything's things good. But here's what he had really done in that moment. He had thrown his lot in with the Israelites. He had chosen sides. He wasn't going to be one who was going to persecute the Israelites like Pharaoh's household. He was going to be one that would protect the Israelites. He was going to be one who would identify with his people. He was choosing between two lives. It says here he was choosing a life to be mistreated with the people of God rather than a life that was filled with the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's a part of Pharaoh's family. That was no easy choice. I mean, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses had a lot going for him. He was protected from all that harsh treatment that the Israelites faced. They were slaves. He was royalty. And he didn't have to suffer any of that so long as he was in the household. He had access to great riches, great endless supplies of food in Pharaoh's palace, unlike his Israelite brothers and sisters who many were starving as they lived as slaves. It wasn't just food and money that he had. He had access to countless pleasures of whatever type you could possibly imagine. Plus he had authority, plus he had position, plus he might have even been in line to be Pharaoh. But yet in that moment, this was not just a one-time decision. He was making the decision to choose the side of the Lord and to turn away from the endless opportunities of sin that were in front of him. He had the ability to, of a life, to choose a life of pleasure, a life of sinful pleasure, all that he could possibly imagine he could have just like that if he simply chose to fall in line and do what Pharaoh's family did. But instead, he said, you know what? I don't want the endless pleasure of sin. I want the permanent pleasure and joy of the Lord. And he chose the right thing. He chose obedience. Now let's think about our own lives. The truth is, is that sometimes the temptation, the pressure for us to cave in to sin is strong. It's very similar to the first point. You know, sometimes we, we say, well, we're going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing, and we try to obey by willpower. I'm just going to will myself to do the right thing. But what happens? Willpower eventually starts to fade out. We start to get weak. The temptation continues, and, and, we, and we're, we're living on our own power and our own ability, and suddenly we falter to sin. Several weeks ago, Back in May, we went to the beach with our, our family and uh, down to Destin. And on one of the nights, we went to uh, one of those little like putt-putt golf places. They got the go-karts and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as soon as we pulled in the parking lot, my son Will spotted this big tower thing. And he was like, Dad, I want to do that. And it was this big swing where they strap you into this swing and they crank you up like 75 feet. And then you pull the cord and then you swing back and forth and all this kind of stuff. Now, my son's seven and a half, going to be eight in September. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm thinking like, 
you really want to do this? <laughs> you know? And he's like, yeah, Dad, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. And so we looked at the price, and we're like, okay, we can afford it. It's not too bad. And, uh, and so, you know, I was the one that got to go with him because Kim sure wasn't going to do it. <laughs> so, and so they strap us into this thing, and, uh, and they pull us up there, and they, they get us up 75 feet in the air. And, and what's really creepy is you have to pull your own cord. That's what really makes it feel really scary, you know, because you're thinking like, okay, is this thing really buckled in? <laughs> you know, uh, did they not miss anything? And, and he was super quiet. Um, they pulled us up there. And, um, and they count down, three, two, one, and I pull the cord, and man, that first little drop was fun. I mean, you just, you just take off, you know, and then you kind of free fall for a second there before the, the rope catches you and you start swinging. And, uh, and Will didn't really say a word for like two swings. We kind of went back and forth, and then he's just, whoa! Um, and, and, and we kind of had opposite reactions. Like he really enjoyed, like I, I really enjoyed the very first part. You know, he really enjoyed the, 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 the whole thing. Like, he was having fun the whole time. But for me, what happened was this. Man, that first drop was exciting. Like, whoa! And then I came back, and I was like, okay, I'm ready to get down. Because <laughs> I remembered, like, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but, like, as I'm swinging, I'm like, I just ate dinner <laughs> and uh, had a bunch of fried shrimp. And those shrimp were kind of regrouping, you know? <laughs> and they were like, what are you doing, <laughs> you know? And so, I'm, I, like, as we're going back, because, I mean, I felt like we swung back and forth for 30 minutes. It was probably, like, two, but it was just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I'm thinking, okay, when are we going to stop? And he was having a blast, but I just was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm ready. I give up on this. Sometimes obedience is exactly like that. We're excited to obey. Man, that, that temptation comes where we're like, I'm going to do the right thing. Yeah! And then the temptation remains. And our momentum begins to fade. And that willpower begins to fade. And we begin to grow less excited about being obedient. And the, the temptation of the sin begins to overcome us. And in those moments, so oftentimes, we'll, we'll, we'll stumble. We'll fail. And I think here's what the weakness really is. When we do that, in that moment, we have, we have convinced ourselves that the momentary pleasure of that sin is greater than the reward we are going to receive in heaven. That the momentary pleasure of that sin, we look at it and we say, okay, I just, you know what, it just, that, that, it, that sin gets so big in our eyes that we say, oh, I can just do this. No one's going to know. No one's going to see this. I can get away with this. It's going to be so great. You know, there's no doubt that sin is pleasurable. There's no doubt that, that, that it is pleasurable. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting, right? And so we have to believe what James 1.15 says, that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully, fully grown, brings forth death. And, and so in faith, we must see what sin is. We must trust what God has said about, in His Word about what sin is. And then we have to believe in faith that the reward is greater for obedience, that whatever pleasure we might receive for sin, that the, that the reward is greater if we will choose the path of obedience. That's what he says in, looking, in Hebrews eleven twenty six. 26. He says, He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Looking to the reward. He chose God's path because he was looking to the reward. He may not have known the name of Christ yet, but Moses was looking and believing in faith that God was going to send a great Redeemer. 
that though he might be the one to, to help bring the Israelites out of Egypt, it wasn't him that was doing it. It was God. And that one day God was going to send a Messiah, the Redeemer. And his faith was in that. And so in faith, he looks forward to the reward of heaven, knowing that God's reward was going to be greater than whatever pleasure he might have gained. And so we must make that, that same choice in faith to choose the reward of God in heaven over the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, why would we make that choice? Let me close with this. You know, sometimes when you ask kids, you know, it's always fun to ask kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because you always get a bunch of different answers. And one of the answers that sometimes you will get is that kids will tell you this, I want to be a firefighter. Maybe you've heard a kid tell you this before. Um, there's, there's something attractive about that, that heroic role, and there's also something attractive about the big red truck, <laughs> you know? Um, but I don't know if you know this, but of the one million firefighters in the United States, only 31% get paid. Do you know that? That 69% are volunteer. In our own state of Tennessee, 86% of firefighters are either fully volunteer or they're mostly volunteer, meaning they only get paid for part of their hours. 86%. And I would say even those who do get paid of the 14% who are full-time, they don't make nearly enough compared to what they do, compared to the danger that they, that they take. They don't make nearly enough. And you, you could say the thing about all first responders. But, you know, I, I think if you were to ask them, those guys who do volunteer in, in fire departments and even the ones that get paid, why do you do it? Why are you willing to put your neck on the line, put your life at risk? They would tell you this because they love their family, because they love their neighbors, and they want to do everything they can to protect them. And so why do we choose the right thing in faith? Why do we choose obedience over fear? Why do we choose in faith obedience over pleasure? Because of our love for God. Because of what God's done for us. Because He's shown us love and compassion, and because of what we have seen God do by faith, we look back at God and say, I'm going to choose your path. Just like Moses' parents chose your path in faith. Just like Moses himself chose your path in faith. God, I'm going to trust you because you have been more than faithful to me. And I want to be more than faithful to you. Would you pray with me? Father God, our lives are faced with countless decisions in which we must choose. By faith, to obey your word, to follow your will and your way. And so God, right now I lift up every single believer in this room that as we walk through our lives day by day, that we would walk by faith, that we would look more to the word of God than we do to the reality of what's going on around us, and that we would obey by faith, trusting that wherever you lead us, you were already there with us. And so, God, I don't know what decisions each person in this room faces today, but I pray that they would make those decisions by faith according to your will and your word. That they would choose obedience over fear, that they would not look with fear at what's going on in this world, but instead they would look at with faith, knowing that you're in control. And that they would choose obedience over the pleasure of sin, that they would see sin for what it is. It might seem fun for a moment, but it brings death. And instead, they would choose the reward of Christ. 
Father God, I pray that there's any individual in this room today who needs to make a decision, maybe for salvation, if there's someone here today who's never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be that day they would put their faith in Jesus and they would walk this aisle at the invitation so that we can talk more with about, about that with them. And God, if there's someone else here today who needs to make some other decision, rededication or church membership or baptism, that you would give them the faith and the trust to respond to the Holy Spirit's move in their life today. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things.